Outsiders with Jared Hindmarsh. This week, a World War II story, a lesser-known one. Allies sabotage, a Kiwi affair, really, of the Asopos viaduct in Greece. When the Nazis came over the border, oh boy, they caught hell. And there are some stories of great bravery in that conflict. And this is one of them, this World War II story concerning the Asopos viaduct and some sabotage undertaken by New Zealanders. Gerard Einmarsh. You're right, it's a lesser-known story. A lot of people uh, can't sort of call off their head the viaduct demolition, but it's a terrific story, and it's one of the best sabotage stories from World War II, and acknowledged by the British as such too. Now, the demolition was carried out by a special forces team, and there's two Kiwis I'm going to really profile in this story. Their names were Sergeant Don Scott and Gunner Bob Morton. Now, they were both in the New Zealand 5th a field regiment that served in Greece. You know, it was a very ill-fated campaign, that Greece intrusion of the Allied troops. And Greece was a sort of, you know, it's a largely mountainous and desolate country, and it's perfect for guerrilla warfare. But during the Second World War, you know, we have visions of Greece today being quite developed, but in the Second World War, apart from a few major cities, it was a land of sort of really poverty-stricken people there were few roads and villages or towns even. And you, you, to get anywhere, you had to go on foot or by mule. It was difficult to control in peacetime and totally impossible during the war. And the Greeks had become very sort of fiery fighters as a result of centuries of foreign rule. After the Allies were pushed out of Greece by the Germans and the Italians, the small bands of Greeks took to the hills and they were sort of at odds with each other, so it was very hard to organise anything. But as I said, the Allies' campaign was really fraught, actually, and um, these two men, Dot and Morton, they became inseparable as friends. They were actually captured. They were both wounded, one a little bit more seriously than the other, but they were captured and taken to a German prisoner of war camp and it was from here that they became inseparable friends and there was a saying uh, one of their officers wrote wherever Don was Bob wasn't far away and they had this reputation for the most daring and resourceful of the special servants agents in Greece but the escape from this prisoner of war camp where these two men were in Greece they developed a series of exercises using bamboo poles. It was a clever little attempt, actually. And the guards, the German guards, used to regard them as sort of mad Englishmen, if you like, sweating always under this hot sun during the middle of the day. But the two men were carrying long poles, and one day no-one noticed that the two men detached themselves from the rest of the group out the back there, and they raced towards the high barbed wire fence encircling the camp. And before... Anyone could react. They just sprinted close to the barbed wire and their poles just dug into the earth and they bent and then straightened and then the two men were just soaring in the air and over the wire. They just pole vaulted out. And the guards, they, it took them a, a second or two to register, but they immediately opened fire on these two escapists who had raced for cover of the nearby scrub and they vanished from view and 
Deafening cheers broke out from the other English prisoners left behind, but Stott and Morton, it began an amazing relationship between these two men, probably the most daring New Zealanders that we have ever really documented. It's quite something, and their escape was something that Germans were soon to regret. There's no doubt about it because they caused such damage to them. And, Jared, I had a go when I was a kid at pole vaulting using a bamboo thing, and... um I was not sharp enough to realise that, okay, if I got up high, I have to come back down again. And um, uh, there were very little preparation for such an event. You find yourself up high and you go, yay, I've done it. And then you go, oh, hell, now I've got to come down. Yeah, and you land in a heap often. Yeah, it would have been quite a dangerous thing for them. Did they throw a mattress over the other side or something? (laughs) No, I don't think they had any luxury like that at all. Right, so they just took their chances with the coming down the other side. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And it was a brave move because anyone found uh, escaping was shot. There's no, you know, and they managed to make it into the scrub. And they eluded capture for the next seven months in Greece in the mountains. They they scavenged for seaweed uh, to eat on the beaches. They made the coast and they made two unsuccessful attempts to sail to freedom, actually. Now, one of them got very ill in a village. A Greek doctor offered them their little yacht. So this was part of their escape to freedom but when they moved to Athens they thought they'd have a better chance from there. They barely eluded capture actually and they made contact with a Greek resistance woman and she ran an escape organisation. Now she hid them in separate flats in the city where they lived, basically in cupboards and each day they would venture out and uh, Stott, he was very fair-haired so he had dyed it very dark to look like a Greek, but each day they went out and they met in the streets. They first had to wait for intelligence information for the Allies, and they were going to get this from their female protector. And now Stott was a very experienced sailor back home in Auckland, and this time on their third attempt, they reached Alexandria safely in Egypt. Now, Stott was sent on an officer's course, and he emerged as a lieutenant, and uh, Morton was promoted to a sergeant. They were then recruited into a special services section in the Middle East which placed secret agents and saboteurs. Now, this special services section was called the firm. They were responsible for high-profile demolition jobs. Now, because Stott and Morton made a huge amount of friends in their um, six months of freedom and also serving in Greece, they lobbied strongly, we want to go back to Greece and fight. They soon found a chance because Rommel was beginning his big fight in the North African desert and it relied on getting supplies from Germany through to North Africa. Now this was achieved for the Germans by railing it through to the Greek port of Piraeus and then shipping it across to the North African coast. The the weak point of this whole transport system was this 400-kilometre-wide mountainous region of Greece where the railway went through some of the most precipitous territory, but in particular there were three viaducts that were absolutely essential, that if the Allies could destroy them, then the German 
effort of getting supplies would be absolutely crippled. These gullies are deep as well. It would take a while to rebuild them and get the goods through again, wouldn't it? It would be a really punishing piece of sabotage. Yeah, absolutely. And the men were involved in the demolition of the first viaduct, which was Gorgopotamus Viaduct. Now, this was a smaller one, but the Germans were absolutely fantastic on the reconstruction. They sent engineers overnight, recruited all the local people. In six weeks, they had that viaduct rebuilt. Trains could still go on it, only slowly, but they were still getting massive amounts of supplies through to North Africa. It became absolutely essential to hit this viaduct. Now, It was an amazing viaduct. It was built on a gradient, so it went up. It had a curve in it, and it was 330 feet above the stream bed, and it was absolutely inspiring in the way it spanned the sheer gorge. And we're talking about not just little hills coming down, Graham. We're talking about rocky mountains that are as smooth as glass almost, and the water action, the gorge where the little creek came through, Asposta's Creek, it was virtually impossible to get near. It had huge waterfalls on it. Some of them were like 50 metres high. There was just no way to secure ropes or anything. In fact, the Germans were so confident that they had a a Sopus viaduct covered that they didn't even bother to guard the creek. It was just an impossible entry below and above. But the Germans had built a garrison right above it. And all night they just panned the hillside all around because there were tracks that came over and you could pick your way down, but they absolutely had it covered. And every night these huge searchlights would just scan across the mountains and it was very well guarded. And on each side of the gorge, the track disappeared into tunnels. Now, the distance between the two tunnels on either side was 600 feet, and the only approach, as I said, was down these little narrow tracks leading over the tunnels, and during the day the tracks were open and in full view of the garrison, and and as I said, at night it was searchlight the whole place. The Allied forces, they just first of all deemed it absolutely impossible, but as soon as Stott and Morton got on the job, then suddenly it became a reality because these guys were just so good and particularly so good together. Now, after their initial training in Egypt, Scott and Morton were parachuted back into Greece purely to commit their act of sabotage against the viaduct because virtually none of the other people involved thought it was actually possible. Now, the idea was to break Rommel's supply line and it was early in 1943 when Scott and Morton, they came down on their parachutes in a very dark Greek night and no moon and the single railway track running the length of Greece. It was working at absolute capacity. Who parachuted them in? The RAF parachuted them in on a secret mission. So when you think about it, Graham, you know, in an occupied country, two men, a dark night, couldn't see a thing, just parachuting down. Absolutely incredible. Now, the whole thing became almost impossible to organise because they needed to have the Greek resistance movements occupy the 
Germans and pull them away from the viaduct. But the Greek resistance movements actually broke into two factions and they sort of bargained against each other, against the British. Oh, look, they just couldn't rely on them at all. So when Stott heard the news that the, the British couldn't get any sense out of the Greek resistance movement to help them, this was at, and at the uh, small village called Anatoly, Stott's immediate reaction, well, well, let's damn well do it on our own. Now, along with a British officer, that was Captain Geoffrey Gordon Creed. Now, Stott, he said that he wanted to sabotage the viaduct. They talked to a Captain Arthur Edmonds. He was another New Zealander who was the liaison officer in charge of the area for the British. He consulted with the head of the British mission to the Greek guerrillas. That was Brigadier Eddie Myers, who had led the attack on the previous viaduct. And they all agreed that the only feasible route for this party was down the impossible river gorge. Now, Edmonds was really optimistic because he knew he had two top men on his case here. But, you know, no one else believed that they could do it. It just seemed impossible you could cart that much gear down that amazing gorge and get down below the viaduct, which was so guarded by the Germans. Okay, so just to recap, we have Don Stott, Sergeant Don Stott and Gunnar Bob Morton of the New Zealand 5th Field Regiment, they're captured by the Germans in occupied Greece and they escape the camp. And where do they go to after that? Okay, they end up in the wilderness for a while and finally they end up in Athens. They meet up with the Greek resistance, they hide in the city and eventually escape by yacht uh, to to Egypt. Egypt. Right, then the RAF dropped them in. Yeah, after special training, the RAF dropped them in. All right, we'll take a short break, and when we return, we'll continue the story of the Allies' sabotage, a Kiwi affair, really, of the Asopos viaduct in Greece, World War II, 1943, which is supplying Rommel. This is the Weekend Variety Ones on Radio Live. Outsiders with Gerard Heinmarsh, 1943, occupied Greece. The Nazis have come over the border and are supplying Rommel's North African affair via rail through these tunnels and viaducts in Greece and then out from a port to North Africa. If they could really hobble this by knocking out a viaduct or two, it would set back the North African plans. Okay, a couple of Kiwis, Sergeant Don Stott and Gunner Bob Morton, have escaped a German POW camp in Greece. Uh, they pole vaulted over the edge, over the perimeter. Hilarious, really. Uh, it wasn't wartime. And managed their escape to Egypt and have been dropped in by parachute by the RAF to do this seemingly impossible job. Jared. Yeah, okay. So they knew what they were up against and an absolutely impossible approach down this gorge. Now, uh, Myers, Stott and uh, Gordon Creed, they they are the key players in this little sabotage outfit. They left Anatoly Village to reconnoitre the gorge themselves. Now, they weren't gone long. They realised straight after entering the ravine that the first thing, they were stopped by an 18-metre waterfall and they realised that the gorge was only a canyon. It was only a few metres wide with sheer cliffs just going up 300 metres above the river and most of the time, 
time had been they'd spent wading in this icy cold water. It rose way above their waist. They never saw any sunshine in this gorge, and the walls are just so high. And waterfalls were definitely the main obstacle. They identified another one that was over 50 metres high, and all the walls had been worn smooth by water rushing down. You could just imagine getting down here. But anyway, on the 21st of May, a party of eight left to make an attempt on the viaduct. Now, Gordon Creed was in command with Stott as the chief guide, if you like, and they took with them 100 metres of rope. They plaited from every available scrap of parachute line and Stott led the way into the gorge the following day and it was terribly backbreaking work. They were carrying stores and explosives and wading through this freezing water or climbing up the cliff sides. They struggled on making poor progress until they reached another waterfall about 30 metres high and they called a halt and they roped down the waterfall the next morning to recce it. It was days into this now. By mid-afternoon, they were only halfway between the second and third waterfalls, basically. Bringing all the supplies along and the um, explosives needed just made it a, a huge job and they halted for the night, just camping on a little ledge and Scott always climbing the cliff face to survey the scene ahead now. Now, the next day, Scott took Morton with him on a reconnaissance down the gorge, and they left the other six men to rest. Now, the two New Zealanders, they worked out the third waterfall. It was a sheer drop of 20-something metres, and all their rope, of course, had been used up on the first two waterfalls, so they knew that they couldn't progress any further. They had no option but to retreat to the main party without getting inside of the viaduct, uh, despite the fact that they were two-thirds of the way down the gorge. But they had brought the stores and explosives down with them, so they were now in a safe, dry place, and they battled their way back to the other six men now. Knowing that they didn't have to carry it on the way back no. in, they basically set up a base camp. That's right. And with a little camp as well and all the explosives cached under the rocks. So they were quite safe there. Now on the 28th of May, the group, they arrived back at Edmund's headquarters for, with requests for ropes. They wanted grappling irons, um, head packs and other equipment to be parachuted in from Egypt. Now they had to wait for the airdrop from Egypt and during that time Morton was recalled to Athens to assist with the sabotage of the main airfield at Athens and so Stott, he felt like his left arm had been ripped off not having Morton now by his side and Morton disappeared for the rest of the SOPUS demolition actually so it was Stott basically by himself without his best mate. It's amazing how much resistance and fight back was still going on within occupied Greece, not just through the native resistance fighters, the Greeks, but uh, with help, you know, the RAF and 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 um, the the Allied armies involved oh. as well, still there. Yeah, and whole villages mobilised and. And, of course, they, you know, knew the place so well they could basically outwit the Germans, particularly in the uh, rural sense. Now, 
Morton was out of the picture now and as I said Stott was terribly disappointed but anyway Stott led the advance party of three to the gorge for basically the third time now to force a way through now with him he recruited a New Zealand driver called Charlie Mutch he had also escaped from a German prisoner of war camp and he was working at Edmunds headquarters and there was also a Mikhail Khoury now he was a Palestinian Arab soldier who had been left behind in Greece during the Allied uh, evacuation. This was the team that Stott was working with. Now, they carried as much in their rucksacks as possible, ropes, climbing irons, axes. They had a rope ladder and all their stores as well on the first day in the gorge. Now, they knew that the third waterfall was going to be one of the worst. So the first waterfall was going to be one of the things that they just had to get down. Now, they had a brainwave. They looked, one of them spotted a tree that was about uh, 20 or 25 metres high and it had branches every metre or so. Well, anyway, they spent hours felling this tree and they dropped it into the little creek and they manhandled it down. It must have been a hell of a job pushing and shoving and cutting off limbs as they got stuck. But anyway, when they reached the um, waterfall, they secured the log with ropes and they let it over the drop and to their absolute joy, it reached from the very bottom of the waterfall in the pool right up the waterfall to a metre of the top. Well, branches were just like ladders. Suddenly they were just down this ladder without even having to use their ropes or anything anyway. The next morning, stopped leading. They pushed on another 100 metres only. They were up to their necks in water and Stott was always in the lead. He uh, started to round a bend in the narrow gorge when suddenly he quickly retreated and, and hands up, don't talk, don't talk, and he whispered to them he'd come face to face with Mrs Washing. Now, this was the code word they used. Viaduct was in their code, their operational code. It was called the soapy one. And to destroy the viaduct was the washing. So they were there with the soapy one to do its washing, if you like. And this was the code that they used. So he came face to face with Mrs. Washing. What is Mrs. Washing? The viaduct. That's their code name for the viaduct, yeah. So he's there. They've made it. Yeah. All right, they've made it to the viaduct. They've got their gear, trying to blow the damn thing up. But there are Germans everywhere on the sniff. We're in Greece, 1943, a band of Kiwis pulling off some spectacular sabotage of the railway, which is supplying, essentially, Rommel, amongst others, in North Africa. We'll take a break and be back very shortly. The most interesting radio show on planet Earth. The Weekend Variety Wireless. On Radio Live. 1943, a special Kiwi story from occupied Greece. The Germans are there, of course, and uh, various acts of sabotage are being undertaken because Greece is very important to the supply of the North African effort. And not only that, but, of course, maintaining their hold in occupied Greece. All right. Now, we have these cats, uh, Stott and Morton. Morton's been called off for another act of sabotage on the airfield in Greece in Athens. So Stott, on his own, with a small team, with the explosives, trying to get to this viaduct. Not an easy job. It is really up and down terrain. Maybe think the uh, Queenstown shot over or something along those lines. 
but they've made it. Jared. Yeah, well, you certainly wouldn't get a jet boat up this little creek. It's just a, an impenetrable gorge. But Stott came around the corner and he came face to face with what he called Mrs. Washing, their code name for the viaduct. Now, the viaduct was only 30 metres away from him and his eyes took in this network of scaffolding which had been erected all over it and there. All over it were workmen, these Greek workmen mostly were swarming everywhere. Uh, now, this was all conscripted labour, of course, and there were heaps of ladders that came up from the bottom of the arch to a kind of a work platform where a lot of riveting was being done. Now, Stott took in the scene very carefully and he looked downstream and he saw two workmen and he, they were only 10 metres away from him, but they were collecting stones from the riverbed and they had their heads down, luckily, and they didn't see him and he anyway retreated around the bend and steps had been cut in the cliff, he noticed, to give the workmen access to the river from the viaduct below. Now, Stott took a bit of time here to write a message to Creed, his daughter Edmunds, I should say, uh, and this was what he wrote down. I got down the big waterfall, found it the last, and suddenly, when I rounded the bend, I came face to face with Mrs Washing herself. There was a lot of activity going on, workmen swarming over the viaduct, strengthening it to carry heavier loads and making a deuce of a din, riveting. They have scaffolding erected all over it, ladders leading up from the bottom. I was taking all this in when I looked down the stream and saw two workmen ten yards away from me, working with their heads down, getting stones out of the stream. Luckily, didn't see me. I quickly got out of sight. These workmen come down from the railway line by some steps cut in the North Cliff face, and we should be able to get up this way. Send Jeff, Scotty and Mac immediately. The job is in the bag. I'm going off for a recce of the road south of Lamia while the others are coming. Yours, Don Stott. He thought the job was in the bag. Now, much the New Zealand driver, he left immediately with this message at Anatoly and on the 18th of June, the six members of the party, they met up just inside the gorge. They'd been hiding in there, Stott and his little band, and for the rest of the day and most of the Knicks, they carried more explosives and stores down the river gorge to within striking distance of the viaduct. Now, this was just arduous work, working dawn to dusk. They had to keep all the equipment as dry as possible, water always above their waist nearly, and they were finally paused for the attack. Now, this was, just had to wait for darkness. So this was the evening of the 19th of June. They moved the explosives up to the northern base of the steel arch, and there they found that the wire entanglements had been folded back just a little bit to allow the workmen through to the river, and ladders had been placed against the arch, reaching up to the work platform. Now, above them on the viaduct, silhouetted against the moonlight, they could see sentries pacing back and forth like 50 metres away and equal distance beyond him was this guardhouse containing 50 German guards. Now, Scott and uh, McIntyre, one of the British guys, they were the explosives expert. They climbed up one of the first convenient platform. They hauled the explosives up using parachute lines and they fixed the charges. Now, 
Gordon Creed kept watch on the track leading down from the guardhouse to the river and they were almost hidden from the guardhouse but they could fix its position because they could just hear the Germans talking. That's how close it was. All went well until they saw the red glow of a cigarette end appeared above them coming down the path. Now, they knew that one of the guards was coming down for a check or maybe even a pee or whatever, but Gordon Creed signalled the two engineering sappers, basically um, Stott and McIntyre, to be quiet, and he concealed himself just along the track. Now, nearer and nearer came the glowing cigarette down the track until Creed could see the figure of a German soldier. And as the century passed, Gordon Creed just hit him on the back of the head with a huge lump of wood and his body just tumbled soundlessly over the edge of the path and into the river. It was about a 40-metre drop. You'd have to be so sure. This is, it sounds awful, this is wartime. You'd have to get that right first time, wouldn't you? Yeah, you you would. You wouldn't want him screaming and yelling. And if he was wearing a helmet, it wouldn't have worked, you know. It was, Uh, yeah. Anyway, Scott and McIntyre straight back into it. They started fixing the explosives into place and every sound they made, no matter how slight it seemed, magnified a thousand times into a sort of clatter, if you like. But Stott approached Gordon Creed and said that he should go back up the gorge once the explosives were set to a lookout point so that he could make an accurate assessment of the damage at first light. So that was the plan. They were going to set the explosives and then go to a high point where they couldn't be captured now. Mutch and Curry had also brought two mules down to the start of the gorge as well that they'd got from local villages and this is how uh, Mutch described this whole night. It was a mad scramble, swimming, climbing ropes. While going up one rope ladder, my arms gave out on me and I fell back seven metres and knocked myself out. I came to 15 minutes later, hearing Curry calling to me from the top in the darkness. So you can imagine, not only were they fixing explosives, but they're knocking themselves out from mm. falling down. Anyway, Scott and McIntyre, they were nearing the end of their work and they dislodged a loose rivet and it went bouncing off the rocks and just ding 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 now now a searchlight came on and it swept the entire viaduct from one end to the other and then it passed over the two men they were in total camouflage gear they hid their faces and their hands in a little crevice and the, they were sure that the beam seemed to have them pinned down and it just stayed there looking at them and they thought, oh my God, we're going to get shot at any second. And then absolute relief as the searchlight went on and they could sort of resume breathing. And anyway, at the stroke of midnight, now this was two hours on the platform, uh, Scott and McIntyre, they signalled to Gordon Craig that they were finally finished. Now, what they'd done is they'd fixed charges to four members of the arch and they'd connected it with rings of explosive fuse and they'd duplicated it in case anything went wrong. Now, the head... Is this a steel arch, wooden arch or stone arch? Oh, no, sto- uh, a steel arch. Absolutely state-of-the-art. OK. Uh, yeah, all riveted and bolted together. Now, 
The men used five what they call time pencils to set off the charges. You know, they're like these things kids use at raves now. They can break them and the light comes on for four or five hours. Well, these are a chemical thing that starts the fuse off, a delayed action. And in Mm -hmm. an hour, basically an hour and a half, the acid in these tubes would eat through the wire inside and that would release a spring that would force a hammer down onto the cap, which would detonate the charges. Yeah, absolutely state-of-the-art they were working with. Stott and McIntyre, they climbed down from the platform to join Gordon Creed and the three of them took one last look at the viaduct and they saw a sentry leaning idly over the handrail. He was looking down into the depths. He was having a cigarette. Speed was absolutely essential now, but they were totally exhausted. Getting back up the waterfalls was just a nightmare. They were absolutely in endurance mode. An hour and a half in the black, totally black at night, they, they'd just made it towards the end, but an hour and a half passed, but there was no sound of the explosion, and they all started looking at each other like a further quarter of an hour passed. There was nothing, and Scott and McIntyre, they went back with Creed over every step of their work in case they missed something, and the the time pencils, they were sensitive to cold, and it was very cold in the gorge, so they thought maybe the time limit of the explosion could be extended by a quarter of what they expected but no more anyway after two hours after leaving the platform they stopped and debated whether to go back and see what had gone wrong and suddenly there was this huge bright flash and it lit up the top of the gorge and they heard no sound actually uh, because the roar of the river was so great and this is something that could have concealed them coming down that they never made any noise in this noisy little raging river anyway they were absolutely sure now the explosives had worked and they stood in the freezing water up to their waist and all hugged and congratulated each other and the impossible they'd achieved the impossible they were so buoyed now they just raced up the gorge and Stott joined them in the morning and told them how Dawn had looked down on empty space where the viaduct had been and there were guards running around in great confusion and he'd come back and joined his mates for breakfast. Absolutely uh, a, a joyous breakfast. Now, during their withdrawal from the viaduct, they'd tried to leave absolutely nothing behind, which would make the Germans suspect that British saboteurs were responsible. And suspicion fell on the commander of the garrison, the German, the German commander, as how could this have happened? And all the workmen were interrogated. They were all suspected. And, you know, after two days of the most serious inquiries by the SS, the whole garrison was judged guilty of gross neglect of duty and the first three top-ranking officers were shot. Good God. Isn't that amazing? That is. Okay, we'll take our final break and when we return, what happened after this successful sabotage of the viaduct at Esopos, 1943, World War II? The most interesting radio show on planet Earth. The Weekend Variety Wireless. A bunch of On Radio Live. Sabotaging the viaduct at Asopos in Greece, Nazi-occupied area, and uh, it was a complete success. It really does sound very much like it, it should be a movie. Maybe it has been a movie, Jerry. Oh, I don't think it has, Graham. Waiting to be made, I think. Yeah, 
yeah. Mm. Although they're not in vogue at the moment, these sort of things. But, uh, yeah, who cares? It should have been a movie. All right, they've successfully blown up this viaduct. No way for the trains to get through to supply either southern Greece or, probably more importantly at the time, North Africa with Rommel. Yes. So... Uh, a, a great success for these guys. Oh, absolutely. And uh, five days after the um, demolition, the Germans found the remains of a rope ladder made of parachute cord that Stott had actually left behind, and they realised that saboteurs had attacked through the gorge. So the commanders, the German commanders that were shot for negligence and the local Greek indentured labour, uh, they were... Uh, interrogated as well. That wouldn't have been much fun. It's too late for their redemption, I suppose. Well, they just carry on. They're needed for working, of course, but they, three German officers, it's sort of like the opposite to a performance bonus, isn't it, that you get today. Anyway, they were promptly shot. An engineer was flown in from Germany straight away to repair the viaduct. He claimed, too, that he'd have it completed in six weeks. Now, when they were connecting the new spans, the framework collapsed and it crashed down on the original span and the engineer and 40 of his workmen fell to their deaths in the gorge below. Good and God. another engineer had to be flown in, but the line and the military supplies to Rommel had been cut for at least three months. And Middle East headquarters in Cairo, the Allied Middle East headquarters, they regarded the blowing of Esopus Viaduct as one of the greatest feats of sabotage of the war. It was amazingly commemorated. Captain Edmonds, he made separate recommendations for awards to the six men involved, and they differed in only one respect. Edmonds had recommended the Victoria Cross for Stott, while Myers had recommended the Distinguished Service Order, the second-in-command. Now, a short time later, Edmonds and Myers got together and discussed the details of the raid, and Myers hurriedly signalled Cairo that Stott should be awarded the VC, but it was too late. And, you know, the way that these medals are awarded, Stott only received the DSO. Why was it too late? Oh, because Myers had only recommended the DSO and he wasn't so involved in the operation. But on talking to Edmonds, Edmonds had said, no, Stott needs the VC for this. Oh, He's the man. Right, but the order had already gone through. Yeah, already gone through and it's just too late. And Bob Morton, let's go back to Bob Morton, our Stott's friend, totally disappointed at having missed the Sopus Viaduct operation. But, you know, four months later, the two were active in the Athens area on plans to sabotage a German aircraft that was still coming in. But, you know, their secret headquarters where they were rendezvousing was discovered and they lost all their explosives and ammunition. But nevertheless, um, they didn't get caught and... While in Athens, the end of the war was starting to show, Stott was actually approached by the Germans through a, a sort of intermediary, if you like, to discuss a peace proposal for Greece. And Stott actually met up with Colonel Loss. He was chief of the Gestapo in southeast Europe and returned to Cairo in November 1943 with these things he called agreement feelers for local peace. And the British authority weren't prepared at all to negotiate, although they acknowledged Stott's initiative with a bar for his DSO, another bar. Now, 
Stott has a bit of a sad end, really. In 1944, uh, Stott and Morton, they were seconded to the Australian Army for special service sabotage work in the Pacific, and their name had got around. They were in demand, and on the 20th of March 1945, Stott and a small party, they were dropped off in Borneo by a submarine, and they were going to make a reconnaissance for a planned landing by Australian troops. Now, Stott was in one of the two rubber dinghies which became separated in the dark and he was never seen again. Good God. He was presumed drowned. Yeah. And two days after that, Morton landed in Borneo to take over leadership of the Party of Eight. Uh, He was immediately deemed to be the guy in charge and the Japanese knew that they were ashore and they employed a huge force to go and capture them. In six weeks, Morton and his men eluded the Japanese and they successfully fought one battle against a large force of the enemy as well and managed to escape. By May, Morton had completed the survey and he bought an old boat obtained from some of the villages and he sailed for several hundred miles before being rescued by a passing RAF plane. It was amazing. Morton received the military cross for that work. What an astounding couple of guys. What did they do in Borneo? Basically arranging for the invasion of Borneo and where to go, all the villages. They'd made contacts with all the villages. You know, best places to have acts of sabotage, basically. Right, gotcha, yeah, yeah. And Khoury, who was the Palestinian soldier, he was also awarded the um, DSO. He got a bar too for that. So the whole troop ended up being quite commemorated for this, but, you know, hardly known. Of course, if Stott had got a VC, then uh, things would be very different, of course. Yeah, yeah, it would. And Morton survived the war? Yeah, he survived and came back to New Zealand. Always mourned his mate, apparently. Mm, you would, wouldn't you? An amazing story, these two. Yeah, a lot of mourning of mates did go on after World War Two. Yeah. And during. Yeah. All right. Okay, a fabulous story, Jared. It should be on on Christmas Day in Britain, shouldn't it? Like The Great Escape. Oh, I reckon, and it would make a fabulous film too. Yeah. Without yeah. a doubt. Yeah, I can see Frank Sinatra on a Greek railway doing something. Yeah, you know what they say about Dunkirk, didn't have any woman in it. That was a bit of a thing some people noticed. But this one, of course, has the female Greek resistance worker who basically enabled them to escape from Greece and come back to stage sabotage. Dunkirk not having many women in it, right. <laughs> they, they were going for reality. Exactly. All right, thank you very much, Jared. Fabulous tale. Yeah. And now a little better known good one and don't forget folks you can go to the archive and listen at your leisure at the outsiders archive on the weekend variety wireless web page cheers jared good one graham
Nice to have Gerard Hindmarsh back. It's a fresh outsider, a great tale. And also nice to have the Outsiders Archive absolutely complete. Uh, it's on the Weekend Variety Wireless webpage, along with albums turning 40, shipwreck tales, all that sort of stuff. I'm mentioning those two in particular because Grant Smithies is going to be away for a few weeks and we will be uh, effectively repairing the shipwreck tales archive. Some fell off the ship, uh, man overboard, and by replaying them, um, we'll do those on Saturday nights where Grant Smithies usually is and uh, just slowly add them so that archive will be absolutely complete with all the shipwreck tales that John McChrystal did, which will be a lovely thing. I don't like into incompleteness on those sort of things. Um, you wouldn't either. I get emails from people. Where's the story of that one? I can't find it in there. Well, now they will all be there oh, in a few weeks. And then Grant Smithers will return of a Saturday night with more albums turning 40. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening. Uh, don't forget there's a Facebook page as well. Go there. You can have your say about stuff. It's a neat little community. We have arguments. We have discussions. And, dare I say it, conversations. It's really good fun. Good stuff. Okay, that's how Facebook works, or at least that's how Zuckerberg wishes it would work. In our case, it seems to be working swimming, swimmingly. I was banned for a couple of weeks, though. Titties. Apparently, a uh, big problem on the program. I won't go into detail here. It's midnight and we go to Overnight Talk. 0800 844 747. Graham Hill signing off. Thank you very much. Have a great week.